1: In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 63 through 66.
0: He answered and said unto them, verse 11, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. In other words, in public he speaks in riddles. And we're all taught, well, those parables, they're teaching aids. No, they're not. I mean, yes, they are, but they're also designed so that his own will hear and understand; others won't. That's rather weird. You think that's Chuck Missler interpretation? Let's go on. See, for them, for you, it's given, but to them, it's not. Those people out there, you see. For whosoever hath, to him it shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken even that which he hath. That's pretty interesting language. Therefore I speak unto them in parables, because they, seeing, see not, hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and not perceive. For this people's heart is become gross. Their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes, if they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they shall see, and your ears, for they shall hear. Verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. Hear, therefore, the parable of the sower." And then goes on to interpret for them what the first of the seven parables meant. We won't go through the parables, obviously. That's peripheral to our interest tonight. But I want you to notice verse 34, where the style, the the method is again commented on. Verse 34, all these things spoke Jesus unto the multitude in parables. And without a parable spoke he not unto them. In other words, he only from this point on, chapter 12 on, he speaks in public always in parables or if I, may, if I may be allowed a little license, always in riddles. And he only spoke to the public in parables or riddles. From Not always, but from this point. See, Sermon on the Mount, he didn't do that. Back in chapter 6, 7, and so on of Matthew, he lays it on the line. But see, from this point on, he's now speaking mystically. Why? Well, verse 35 says, that it might be fulfilled that was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Now, that's kind of interesting. That means that the content of these parables will not be found in the Old Testament. See, if these parables are understandable from the Old Testament, they're not kept secret from the foundation of the world, are they? He's revealing something here in this chapter that's been kept hidden from the foundation of the world. Which means the subject of those parables is something that was not in the Old Testament. At least not expressly in the Old Testament. Paul answers that part of the picture in Ephesians 3 by pointing out that which was hidden in the Old Testament is the church. These seven parables turn out to speak to the ecclesia, this peculiar, interesting, fascinating, mystical thing that Christ announces here in chapter 13 and, of course, gets fulfilled in Acts 2 onwards. The church. Strange, strange. The more you study the entity, this mystical thing called the church, the more you study it, the more baffling it is. It has all kinds of attributes that were not true in the Old Testament nor will be true in the tribulation. It's a very special period with very special blessings, very special privileges. In fact, it's so incredible that's what makes it too easy. We have a tough time swallowing grace. Must be something we've got to do. No, that's blasphemy. God's done it all. But, 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 no, no. God's done it all. It's for the asking. He's got a destiny for you that's so fantastic. You can't be eligible for it by anything you do. Keep the law perfectly. That's not possible. Well, unless you do that, you aren't eligible. No problem. He's paid the ticket in advance. He's paid your admission. 100%. Not 50 or 99%. All of it. He's paid 100% of it. To try to add to that is blasphemy. It's It's impugning what he's already done for you. And it's available for the asking. A destiny for you that's so fantastic you can't be eligible on your own. He's taking care of the whole thing. The church. Boy, what an interesting entity. Interesting entity. Anyway. So what happened in chapter 12 to cause Jesus to shift his entire approach, his entire style of presentation. Well, earlier in the chapter 12, he's Lord of the Sabbath, he heals on the Sabbath day. You know, I really don't know. It seems they always record these events that occur on the Sabbath day. You could get the impression, I don't believe this is true, you get the impression bringing the Gospels that Jesus went out of his way to stir up trouble. Didn't he ever heal a leper on a Monday or a Tuesday or a Thursday? <laughs> now, he obviously, I suspected it many times. But the ones that turn out to be significant, especially significant, are those when he did it on the Sabbath day. And that's, of course, what happens many times. But here, of course, he heals, you know, this paralyzed man and so forth, right? But we get down to verse 24. The Pharisees heard it and they said, This fellow doth cast out demons, but by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Bad news, Pharisees. Don't believe him if you don't want to. That's your privilege. But don't do what you just did. You're ascribing his power to Satan. Ooh, yeah. That's different than saying, "Gee, I don't accept Jesus Christ. I don't believe it. I don't believe the Bible." Someone like that has problems, but they're repairable. They can repent. But to take the position that they did is somehow crossing the line. They're acknowledging the reality of what he did, but ascribing his source, his power, his allegiance, if you will, to Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Verse 25, Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city of your house divided against itself shall not stand. He's talking like any military general. You don't divide yourself and fight against yourself. That's dumb. That's what he's saying. It goes on. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? See, he's just got through casting out, in effect, Satan. Are you saying I'm doing it by the power of Satan? He's saying you guys aren't even logically connected. <laughs> Which saying, If I by of have cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Oh boy, you guys are in deep trouble. You thought you were in yogurt by disbelief. You're in deeper yogurt now. Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man? That's interesting. And then he will spoil his house. He that is not with me, now, interesting. See, Jesus here is in, the, is in the role, idiomatically, of the spoiler. The model he's conjuring up, mentally at least, is that Satan's bound and he's spoiling his house. See, if he's going to cast out demons, somehow, by some procedure, Satan is, in, is trembled somehow to let that happen. Huh? That's the implication of the, of the idiom he's using here. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. I'm reminded of some self-styled investigative reporters that are running around the landscape from time to time on talk shows and what have you that seem to make their practice attacking brethren in the body of Christ. Various authors to whom they slight, they have some quarrel or another, which is fine. They should do that and confront them directly. But it fascinates me how the, the, the style today of so many of accusing the brethren publicly. I did a little study of what the accuser of the brethren is. I know where that doctrine comes from. <laughs> Makes me very uncomfortable when I see that happen. Does that mean we should go be silent? No, but it does mean that we deal with these doctrines within the body and not on secular radio. It's interesting how there are those that would call themselves members of the body of Christ that spend their time dividing the body. Tragic. Then we get to the famous verses, 31 and 32, but they now, I think, have a different complexion than you may have perceived before. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven man. Amen. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this age nor in the age to come. The so-called unpardonable sin. Let me hasten to add something. If you're worried about it, that means you haven't done it. If you're concerned about having somehow done that, who's telling you to be concerned? Holy Spirit. So he's he's still in there pulling for you. So don't get all hung up that, gee, you know, I've done the unpardonable sin. Because if you have, you wouldn't be worrying about it. You follow my logic. Either make the tree good or its fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt, its fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by its fruit. Oh, generation of vipers. I love that phrase. You know, if you have to understand how the Pharisees felt about snakes, idiomatically, Levitically, what's a snake? The Nachash, the shining one from Genesis 3. He's saying, hey guys, You're a generation of vipers. He's calling them the seed of the serpent from Genesis 3.15. How can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account of it in the day of judgment. Oh boy, do I have a lot to pray about. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. You know, I, I, I come to verse 38, and I crack up. He just got through healing so dramatically they have to ascribe it to Satan, right? Then they have the chutzpah to come and say, hey, by the way, we'd like to see a sign. And Jesus says, no kidding. No, he says, verse 39, He's answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. I love this passage because, first of all, I don't know how to get three days and three nights between Friday and Sunday. So I'm one of these screwballs that believes Jesus Christ was crucified on a Wednesday. And don't misunderstand me. Many good scholars hold the view and justify it on Friday, and other good scholars hold on Wednesday. So I won't get into that whole controversy. Just be aware that there are viewpoints. But this is one of the reasons that we really think it's not three partial days counted as a full day, but three days and three nights, because the sitting Most of us see this and presume that what he is referring to is his resurrection. He's crucified, right, dead and buried. And just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the big fish, so the Son of Man was three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, right? No problem. There are some that believe that this that prophecy is a double reference. It refers to his resurrection certainly. Don't misunderstand me. But it's interesting that we come back to Hosea 5:15. I will go and return to my place, God says. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense. What offense? The rejection of the Messiah. There are comparable passages in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, again, where the word for the offense is clearly in the Hebrew a singular, specific indication. Till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face in their affliction, they will seek me early. And to get to the point, there are those that believe that the Antichrist and the Armageddon scenario, all the nations come against Jerusalem, the remnant follows the instructions of the Messiah who told them in Matthew 24, verse 15, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whosoever is, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee. Don't even grab your coat if you're in the field. Split like now, Remember? Where do they split to? Other passages in the Old Testament indicate that they're going to take refuge in Petra or Basra. Now, why does Satan care? You know, one of the things that used to puzzle me a lot is I can understand from Revelation 12 that Satan has had this plot against the Messianic line. When God told Adam and Eve that there's going to be one of their offspring that was going to be deliverer, he took right on after Cain and Abel and got that whole story, thinking he'd won, only to find out, Seth, there's some more, and so on. As we go through, all through the Scripture, we find again and again Satan maneuvering. The more God reveals of his plan, the more he's allowed to focus his attack. To do what? To break the will of God. And you, you can study the whole Bible from that viewpoint. All through the kings, there's always some plot to kill off all the offspring, but there's always one secreted away that beca- maintains the royal line and so on. The uh, slaughter of the babes in the days of Pharaoh, where Moses is miraculously taken care of. Or the slaughter of the babes by Herod in Bethlehem. All plots, satanic plots, to disconnect the royal line. Okay, Christ is born. He ministers. He goes to the cross. He's crucified. He's resurrected from the dead. You jump to the conclusion that wouldn't you think it's over? Hey, the victory is Christ. It's all over. Maybe not in Satan's mind. See, he may be a slow learn. And, of course, you know, uh, he's psychotic, and sin begets sin, and he's been sinner longer longer than any of us can have any concept of. So I would, I think you begin to understand some of this when you begin to look at him that way, at least. The point is, maybe there's some event. See, why is Satan so anti-Semitic today? He certainly is. All prejudice, all racial prejudice is bad, but there's something peculiarly strange about the world's animosity towards Israel. Why? Well, it's satanic. Fine. Why? Why does Satan care? There is a hypothesis by some scholars is that there's yet an event as a precedent condition to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Not the rapture. That's, that can happen anytime. But before Jesus comes back, They have to ask them. See, the idea is is that I will go to my former place until they acknowledge their offense. In their affliction, the tribulation, they will seek me early. And the suggestion is, is that in Hosea chapter 6 is the prayer that they pray. Come, let us return unto the Lord. For he hath torn, he will heal us, he hath smitten, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, and the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Then shall we know, if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. There is a view that this may be a second, so to speak, reference to the prophecy of Jonah. And the idea that is suggested by some Hebrew scholars is that the remnant, the believing remnant, will flee Jerusalem at the abomination of desolation and go into hiding. And they will recognize their need to acknowledge Christ as their Messiah. And they ask him, they, they acknowledge their offense, they repent of it, and they request his Coming, And on the third day from that point, he does go to bat for him, where? Not in Jerusalem, in Basra. That's what Isaiah 63, in the minds of some, is an allusion to. Interesting viewpoint. Is it correct? I'm not sure. I, I'm very intrigued with it because if nothing else, it helps us understand what motivation may underlie this strange preoccupation, if I can call it that, of Satan. With not just the Jew, but especially the believing Jew. The so-called Messianic Jew. The Jews that recognize Jesus Christ as the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah of Israel. Yeshua HaMashiach. Interesting idea. I thought it would be worth sharing with you. I don't want to oversell it. It's just a viewpoint. But it's one I find provocative. But let's move on. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 7. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses; For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. I love this passage. It's speaking to whom? Israel. He is their Savior. This is another one of the 10,000 examples that God is dealing with Israel and the church separately. God is not through with Israel. The church isn't the replacement of Israel. Nonsense. He's speaking here of Israel. They are my people, and, they, and, and he was their Savior. In their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and his pity he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore he hath turned to their enemy, and he fought against them. Then he remembered his de- the days of old Moses and his people, saying, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within him, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name, who led them through the deep like a horse in the wilderness, that they should not stumble, As the beast goes down into the valley, and the Spirit of the Lord caused him to rest, so didst thou lead thy people to make thyself a glorious name. Look down from heaven, and behold, from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory, where are thy zeal and thy strength, the yearning of thine heart, and of thy mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Doubtless thou art our Father through Abraham. Be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledgest not. Thou, O Lord, art our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and hardened our heart from thy fear? Return for thy servant's sake, the tribes of thine inheritance, and the people of thy holiness have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down thy sanctuary. We are thine. Thou didst never bear rule over them. They were not called by thy name. Plea of Israel. Our adversaries have trampled down thy sanctuary. It could be referring to Babylon, but it also could be referred to the Romans trampling down the temple, 70 A.D. But let's go on. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens. That thou wouldest come down, that thy mountains might flow down at thy presence, as when the melting fire burneth. That sounds like it's out of Peter, doesn't it? Or Micah 1, either way. And the fire causeth the waters to boil, and make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. One of the strangest things, it's hard to visualize, but it's very vivid in the Scripture, both Old and New Testament, is this whole notion of, of a conflict, an open, knowledgeable conflict between God and the nations on the earth. That's weird. And we can understand unbelief. We can understand those kinds of things. But it's hard for us to imagine the world organ- in an organized way taking up arms against God. And yet, that's what the first psalm talks about. I'll explain that. In the psalms, the, what we call the first psalm is actually an introduction in the Hebrew uh, Bible, I believe. Psalm 2 is really the first psalm. And Psalm 2 is exactly that. Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost talking about the futility of the nations taking up against the God of the universe. That's insanity. But coming. If the nations may tremble at thy presence, and when thou didst terrible things which we looked not for, thou camest down the mountains, flowed down at thy presence. For since the beginning of the world, Men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear. Neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him who waiteth for him. That's interesting. It's very familiar to us because it's quoted in 1 Corinthians two nine, but in a slightly different context. We're going to see the same idea in Isaiah 65 shortly. John 14, Revelation 21. For since the beginning of the world, man hath not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, though God beside thee, what he hath prepared for them who waiteth for him. That's got two sides to that coin. <laughs> you see, here in this context, it sounds a little ominous. Thou meetest him who rejoiceth and worketh in righteousness. Those who remember thee in thy ways, behold, thou art angry. For we have sinned in whose, in whose continuance. And we shall be saved. But we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousness are (laughs) as used menstrual cloths. And we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is none that call upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hidden thy face from us and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, Thou art our Father. We are the clay, and Thou our potter, and we are all the work of Thy hand. There's that idiom again. Paul uses it so often in Romans and elsewhere. Be not exceedingly angry, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech Thee, we are all Thy people." Thy holy cities are a wilderness, Zion a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation, our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised thee is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Wilt thou restrain thyself for these things, O Lord? Wilt thou hold thy peace and afflict us very severely? I am sought by those who ask not for me. Chapter 65, that's an interesting phrase. I am sought by those who ask not for me. I am found... By those who sought me not, I said, behold me, behold me unto a nation that is not called by my name. Boy, that's an interesting phrase. This is in Isaiah. This is in the Old Testament. That's interesting. Echoes around Romans 10, Romans 11, so on.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.